the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. You guys ready to get into the Word of God? Well, if you don't know who I am, I'm Pastor Guy. Glad you came to worship with us on a we call this our next level Wednesday service because people that come on Wednesdays, they're ready to go to the next level. There's, Sundays is not enough for them, and they got to have more, and, and I'm always happy to be in a house with people who hunger for the things of God. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in your Bibles. We'll start in verse 5. Before we do, I was thinking about today when I used to work at FedEx so many years ago. Actually, when I was probably about 20 years old, I was young. My hair wasn't gray and probably couldn't grow a goatee yet, you know, young fella. But th back then, you could hop on the FedEx planes and go wherever they went, you know, for free if you worked there. It's called jump seating. And so I decided to do it one day. I'd never flown on a plane. And me and my friend, we got on the plane. It was a 727. You know, you had to get a ticket from You had to go through a little process. But we got tickets to go somewhere. I forget where it was. We were going to go for the day and come back just so we could say we flew on an airplane. And we got to sit in the cockpit with the pilots. That's where the extra seats were. There's two seats. And I was sitting right behind the pilot. And like I talked about Sunday, that, that 747 taking off, well, this wasn't that big a plane. But still, you sat at the end of the runway, and you're watching and these guys. you got got an engineer over here and a co-pilot, and they're talking back and forth, and they're going over checklists. And I was glad that they, they knew what they were doing, you know. And it was good to see that there was some order in the cockpit. And so I wasn't really scared. I mean, I'm sitting right behind the pilot. That'd be, that's a good place to sit. And so when that tower said, you're clear for takeoff, he put that throttle down, and sure enough, we took off and, and – uh, just like I said Sunday, at one point he let her fly and he pulled back on that yoke and that, that those flaps came down or whatever they do and the wind got up underneath them wings and we took off. Man, my eyes was all big looking out the side window there, seeing the ground disappear. I'd never flown in a jet before. And we got up there and somewhere along our journey, I guess we just couldn't get around this thundercloud, so they decided to go over it or something. And I'm just loving it. You know, I'm listening to the pilots talking everything. And all of a sudden, the plane starts jumping, you know, turbulence. And I'm like, is this what it's like to fly? This is cool. I thought it was like a ride at Disney World or something. And pretty soon, we was jumping pretty good, you know. And I looked back at the guy behind me, my friend, and his eyes was a little big. I said, what's wrong with him? This, I love this flying stuff. And I'm not kidding you. Across the front windshield, all of a sudden, just green streaks of electricity, like static electricity, was going across the windshield. It looked like something in a sci-fi movie or something. I was like, awesome, you know. I didn't know no better. This is the first time I ever flew. I thought this happened every time you went somewhere. 
until I saw one of the pilots turn around and he says, it's going to be okay, guys. We're going to get through this. And I was like, should I be worried? (laughs) But you know what? I got on that plane without a care in the world. Why? Because I wasn't the one required to fly it. I didn't have to go through hundreds of hours of uh, airline certification and so forth to, to be the pilot. I was just along for the ride. And you know, the closer you sit to the one who's in control, the more confident you feel. In the same way as in your Christian life, who's in the pilot seat? I hope you're not trying to fly this plane. Are you at 2 Corinthians 4 yet? All right, verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, you, don't, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made the light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen. Where? It's in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where the glory of God resides. In the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm I'm calling tonight's message the face of Christ. It goes on to say in verse 7, we now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear That our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Well, I could look at that a bunch of ways. One way I look at it is, it says we have great power. And we do. I've been saying that verse for many months now. It just keeps coming to me. But the same power that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in our mortal bodies. The Holy Spirit. The power of God. Jesus' Spirit lives in our hearts. And so we have great power, but it's not of ourselves. He is the power in us. And so tonight we're just going to talk about some things that kind of help us get our theology straight, you know, and so we can, we can, we can relax and know that we're just sitting in the pile in the, in, in the passenger seat and we don't have to make things happen. We're not the one getting us to our destination. But we can trust in the one who is. Because the glory of God, the light that's shining in our hearts, is the face in the face of Jesus Christ. But the problem is, as we as humans with this fallen nature, we keep wanting to think that we have the great power. From the very beginning. That was man's original sin. Pride. And where did he learn it from? The devil. The devil had just got through saying, I'm going to exalt my throne above God's. I'm going to be bigger than God. And so when he fell, he talked man into doing the same thing. He says, God's holding back on you. Don't listen to God. You can be bigger than God. He just don't want you to eat of that tree because he knows when you do, you'll you'll be in the driver's seat. You'll be flying the plane. Well... Satan's plane crashed. 
Jesus said, I, I beheld Satan like lightning fall from heaven. <laughs> he got cast down to the earth with the quickness. <laughs> it was a crash, as it were. But the bad news is, is ours was a crash too. We got kicked out of the garden. And so we lost fellowship with God. And uh, Adam and Eve went out into this new world without the presence of God. They had Cain and Abel, their first two children. And it came time when they grew up that the two boys thought they would give an offering to God. Well, Cain, he's a tiller of the ground. He works the fields. He had planted and sown, and he had grown a crop. And he br brought a big basket full of his work to God. Look, God, what I did. Abel, on the other hand, he kept the flocks. And he took his best lamb. And he sacrificed it and brought it to God as a blood offering. A slain lamb. And the Bible says that God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. Well, that's not fair, Cain said. And you may think that's not fair. But see, God's not after your good works. The work of your hands will never do. Without the shedding of the blood... There is no remission of sin. And Abel understood. He had an understanding of what it took to be made right, to find, be acceptable in God's sight, for His offering to be acceptable. It must be the Lamb. You know where I'm going with that? Is everybody, there's a nod in your head, the, the Lamb of God, which would come later. Sin made this world almost unbearable. To this day, we think we look around and we see the world and the state that it's in. We look at the news. We just have more news now than they had back then. But really, it's no worse now than it was ever. I mean, it, we might be more civilized than we used to be back when everybody had a sword. Really, it's always been bad. There was one point that God said, I'm fixing to wipe them all out because there's no hope for them. Man had got to a point where God let every man do what was right in their own eyes, and it got so bad that he had to wipe them all out with a flood because they, it, would have, it was merciful to wipe them out because they were wiping each other out slowly and unmercifully. And he kept eight righteous people, and you're like, yes, they can start over. you got eight righteous people that want to follow after God. Now we got a head start, but it didn't take them but a couple hundred years, and they were already building a tower to exalt themselves above God again called the Tower of Babel. It's something about our nature that wants to exalt ourselves and sit on the pilot seat. That's what's wrong in all of our lives too. So after that, you know the story about God used Moses to bring them out of captivity and then God with his own finger wrote the Ten Commandments and gave man a law. Because obviously, this letting everybody figure everything out on their own wasn't working. So he, he told them what was right and what was wrong. And what's the first thing we did? We figured, well, I can do all that. I can show God how good I am again. And there we go with a basket full of our own fruit again. But the thing about the law was, nobody could keep it. 
Nobody. Romans 3 says, none, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all, all will always sin because we're born dead in our sins and trespasses, and sinners sin. And none of us will ever be good enough. The law was impossible for us to, t- to keep. Often I mention, I look in the Old Testament, and it, and it almost seems like God is one way in the Old Testament, and one way in the New Testament. You see some of the judgment for the, for the law. You, you see some of the harshness of the judgments that God pronounced against people. The, the great flood that killed everybody. And you think, wow, is it a different God in the Old Testament and the New Testament? It's not. The Bible says that the Old Testament, the old scripture, the, the, the earlier times were written for our admonishment, for an example to us who would come after. See, there's more people alive on the earth right now, 7 billion, than were, have been alive throughout the 6,000 years of human history before us. Right now, the fields are white to harvest. Right now, there's more people on the earth than have lived in all the other because of exponential growth. And so in the Old Testament, we see things like God having them wipe out men, women, and children, and these things, ungodly people were punished, and, and the flood, and these things. And we say, how could God do that? Listen, God is a righteous judge. He doesn't have to explain why he does things, but you can be guaranteed of this. What he did was fair. What he did was just and right. And he did it in mercy to show us this is the real penalty that you should be getting when you disrespect your mother or father or such. This is the, this is the penalty that you should be under for breaking my law. It seems harsh, but he's trying to be a good parent and saying, look, this is what you deserve. But he's contrasting it with the light and the face of Jesus Christ and the grace in which we now stand so that we have a clear choice. We don't want to be under God's judgment. We would rather receive God's mercy. And so God was showing us a clear choice so that us seven billion living here on this planet now have no excuse. We're without excuse. We know the wages of sin will always be death. That's built in. God doesn't have to bring judgment. We bring judgment upon ourselves when we sin. Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was our schoolmaster. That means it was our teacher. The law was given to show us that we couldn't keep it. That we could never earn our way to heaven. Our basket would never be enough. And it was our schoolmaster to show us that we must come to the Lamb. That we must trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. And that through faith, we can be redeemed. Through faith, 
Ephesians 2.8 says we're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God. Grace, not works. I know it feels good to think that you earned something, but this is one thing that you can't earn. This is one thing you receive. You have to humbly, humble that old pride man and put him down and say, I need you, God. And really, that's when you can take off and you can see the green lightning going across the front of your life and you can say, wow, this is fun. Because it's not based on you anymore. That's when life gets good. That's when peace enters the equation. That's when joy can flow in the midst of the storm. Because you know you're going to the other side. You know who's at the helm. And it's not you. Woohoo! <laughs> John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Wow. Moses brought the law that showed us our desperation and our sin, but grace and truth came by Jesus. That's good news. How many is glad that Jesus came for us? Let's turn to John chapter 11. Let's, let's read a story about Jesus. Which one of you could bring a dead man back to life? Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also greater works than these. Okay, so let's be honest. That wouldn't be us bringing a dead man back to life. That would be Jesus through us bringing a dead man back to life, right? But what about leading somebody to Jesus and seeing them come to salvation? That's bringing a dead man back to life, isn't it? Wow, to be a part of that, to be on board for, with that. John 11, verse 1. It says, a man named Lazarus was sick. And you know what? That's not unusual. Because we're all sick. At least we all were sick with sin. The wages of sin is death. And since Adam and Eve sinned, we all die. It's appointed a man wants to die, then the judgment. And so, Lazarus was sick just like us all. We were all sick with sin that leads to death. And it says he lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. And this is the Mary who would later pour expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wipe them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. Well, that's a bold statement. He's not even there. <laughs> he says, no, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. In other words, it's a divine appointment. It's a setup so that people can see who it is that really can bring a dead man back to life. Who it is. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. 
And finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But, but his disciples objected now. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And Jesus replied, there's 12 hours of daylight in every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see. They have the light of this world. <laughs> and he is the light of the world. But at night, there's danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. But the disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping. But Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come on. Let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. I just, the way I picture he said that, you know, kind of sarcastically. They just said, you know, they're wanting to kill you in Judea. Now you want to go back? And Jesus says, well, we're going back so the glory of God can be revealed. Now you'll finally believe. And, and Thomas is like, well, let's go with Jesus. I guess we'll just all die. Well, listen, Thomas. When you die, you better be with Jesus. That's all I got to say. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. And when Martha got the word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And then Martha waxes poetic and pulls out some scripture on Jesus. And she said, yes, he will rise when everyone else rises on the last days. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Where have I heard that before? I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, Clint Eastwood never said anything that cool. <laughs> I mean, that's just cool. What, what's the other guy? That I, Rocky Balboa never said nothing that cool. Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris's jokes ain't even that cool. Because guess what? They may have said it as a line in the movie, but none of them lived up to what they were saying. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And he meant every word of it. Woo! He says, anyone who believes in me will live if we believe. What do we got to do? Achieve? Believe. Even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe that? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's coming to the world from God. Then she returned to Mary and she called Mary and Mary came out and she said the same kind of stuff. And, and it says, uh, let's see, verse 32, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, just like Martha said. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. Now, why is he mad? And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? 
he asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. Jesus is a little emotional at this point. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? And Jesus was still angry when he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across his entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God if you believe? So you're not going to see the glory of God if you don't believe. What's our part? So they rolled the stone aside. And Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all the people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out in the hands and feet bound in grave clothes and his face wrapped in a head cloth. And Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. Verse 45, many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. You think? <laughs> this man been rotten for four days. But, people always have a but. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They went ratted on him. He just raised a man from the dead. Instead of believing, they go rat. Just like the guy that Jesus healed at the pool, been lame for 38 years, and he jumps up and goes tells the Pharisees that Jesus is the one that did it so that they can stop Jesus from doing more stuff. And that's exactly what happens here. If you go on, you see where uh, in verse 53 it says, From that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. For what? For doing a miracle? Why, why do they feel this way? What is, what is driving? And these are supposed to be the religious people. These are the ones that know the scriptures upside down. Why are they against Jesus? Hmm. Well, it says just down from that, that Caiaphas, the high priest, he said that, don't y'all know nothing? It's better for one man to die than the whole nation. And it says that he actually, being the high priest that year, prophesied. But I don't even think he knew he was prophesying. He was just wanting to get rid of Jesus. I think God uses his wrong motives to prophesy the right thing. Huh? Manipulation, that's right, that they want to be seen. They want the credit. The same kind of people, you know, well, I just don't want to go, I don't want to meddle. But 
Anyway, if you move over to chapter 12, Jesus has to go in, go minister somewhere else because they're trying to kill him because he did good, goes about doing good, and the more he does, the more people persecute him. And I'm starting to realize that in, in the church, you know. The more good your church do, does, the more distractors, distractors you got. Distractors and detractors. <laughs> and people riding tractors. I don't know, but a lot of things going on when you... When you start doing good, you know, when we, we was staying small and we wasn't growing, I didn't, I didn't see a whole lot of problem, but now everybody has a problem with what we're doing. Verse 9 in chapter 12, it says, when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, Jesus comes back and he's at Lazarus' house. Lazarus is alive now. They flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. <laughs> well, we'll get him too. If the people want to see him, whoever the people want to see besides us, we're going to kill. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine the pressure that it must be for someone who just would stand behind this pulpit and try to bring glory to themselves instead of to Jesus and try to suppress Jesus and the Word of God and the mercy and, and, the, and the glory in the face of Jesus Christ and bring it to themselves. I don't know how they live with themselves. I'd rather just die right now. Prideful men still seek to keep the spotlight on them at all cost. It's that same old sin. I wrote this. I guess since they clearly couldn't bring Lazarus back to life, they thought it best that they just kill him again. And all that's and all that's all kind of I can't get this word out. Okay. That's and that's all that kind of prideful, judgmental spirit will ever do. It'll just kill people. It won't bring anything to life. It kills. Took me a while to get that out, but I'm glad I did. <sighs> Jesus didn't soften the law. He wrote the law. He's not, he's not against the law. He's the one. It was his finger that wrote it. He came to bring greater clarity to it. So that we can understand the spirit behind the law. Because see, people in their fallen state and their pride, they want to see the law as something that they can manipulate and control and dole out and that they can show everybody how good that they keep it and they can wear their long robes and their fancy tassels and sit in places of honor and pray and make long prayers on, you know, before the people and all these things. But Jesus came to help us not to do away with the law. He said not one word from, uh, from the law will ever pass away till heaven and earth pass away. 
But he brought, come to bring greater clarity. In many ways, he strengthened the law. In the Ten Commandments, it says, don't commit adultery. But Jesus said, I tell you this, that a man who looks after a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That strengthens the law, the power of the law. It's making it greater. But what he's doing is getting at the heart behind the law. You remember when I said God gave the law to to help, help us see? Jesus summed up all the law with the law of love. With one word. Do you believe that? He had given them Ten Commandments. They had turned it into like 600 other laws and stuff. And they were still adding to it and adding stipulations and conditions and in which you could do this and do that. And, and people still do that. And they just read. And they, man, you can't be around them. You can't please them. They're just continually making things heavy. Because that's what the law does. But Jesus summed up the whole law with the spirit that was the law was written in, and that is the law of love. Galatians 5.14 says, For the law is fulfilled in one word. How do you keep the law? One word. Even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In that love, if you keep this, if you have the Spirit of God in you, that the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost, then you can keep the law. But if you don't, you can't keep it because there's no love in a dead, empty shell of a person that has no relationship with Jesus Christ. You can want to be a good person all day. You can fancy yourself being the greatest. But without love of God in your heart, you can never please God or you can never be a good person. You can never fulfill the law. But Romans 13, 10 says, Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of the law. If you love God and you love people, then the commandments are not hard for you. Love is thinking about others anyway. You're not going to cheat on somebody with somebody else's wife. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to slander them. You're not going to steal from them. You love them. Love is the, the one word that fulfills the law. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, religious folk, where that don't know the spirit behind the law, they may be speaking directly from the Word of God, the truth. But because they don't know the spirit of what they're saying, they're twisting the spirit behind the Word. They can make it sound, this is the Word of God. But you have missed the spirit of the Word of God. 
Jesus not only speaks the truth, but he speaks the truth in love. And he tells us to speak the truth in love. Without that love, the law can, the law can kill. The law will slice you up. But with love, love makes all the difference. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That means when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. He became a man. He was God. He is God. Always be God. So will the Father. So will the Holy Spirit. But Jesus the Son became one of us so that we would have a visible image of the Spirit being God. So that we could see with our own eyes what God acts like, what God thinks like, how God handles the law, how God handles the everyday situations in which we handle. And so that's how we know the Spirit of this Word. Because we see Jesus. How do you interpret the Scriptures? How did Jesus treat people? Oh man, I get to go in so long. I always, I put the good part at the end and then I never, I always had to rush through the good part because I preach everything else. How, how do you see Jesus? Did Jesus willy-nilly, greasy grace, man, oh, forget all that law stuff. No, Jesus said, go and sin no more. Didn't he? He told that woman at the well, you've had five husbands. He called out her sin. Jesus is not greasy grace. That's not, that's not what I'm preaching. But he did it in love. And people received it from him. Because love covers a multitude of sins. He, they felt that he was a friend of sinners. They felt that he loved them, and that made their hearts want him. And that he was exactly what they needed. How do you see Jesus? Who did Jesus have a problem with when he was down here mostly? Those same Pharisees. Those same ones that would walk a mile to make a convert and then make them twice the son of hell that they were. Teaching them the, the law without the mercy or without the truth or without the love. Trying to slice everybody up and make everybody feel horrible. What did he say? He said, you're like whitewashed tombs, man. You wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is just nasty. You're making a show of things. You just want to be seen. But what about the heart? See, God does everything in the heart. Who you are on the inside, who you are on the outside should be a reflection, will be a reflection of who you are on the inside. Unless you're a hypocrite and you're play acting. And you can only fool people for so long. 
The Pharisees took that same law that Jesus used to help people get found. See, Jesus helped them get lost so he could get them found. Jesus helped them see that they were blind so that they could see. (laughs) He didn't deny the law. He didn't whitewash it or sugarcoat it. He just spoke the truth in love. He wasn't holding a sign that God hates fags. He wasn't holding a sign that says, you're on your way to hell. Do you know what the word gospel means? In the Greek, I wrote it down. The Greek word for gospel is euangelin. Euangelin. And what it means is, you ain't gelling. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you're not saying that. You? I wasn't passing that up. But it means good news. The gospel is good news. Why do we make it sound horrible? The Pharisees took that, that good news. And they used it to condemn and to write people off. You're not like me. You're excommunicated. Everybody was scared of them. They they loved the power that they wielded. They thought they wielded. And they loved to condemn. But in John 3, 17, it says, For God did not send His Son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's a big difference. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. We know we're lost. We know we're jacked up. We don't need to harp on that. You get to a point where you're lost, now tell me the good news. Don't just leave me in my state. Romans 15, 5 says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. In other words, may you get the same attitude that Jesus had when he was walking the earth, when he saw lost people, when he saw people in need, when he saw hurting, lonely, broken people, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need the same attitude to help people have endurance and encouragement so that they can be saved. We're to share this, you ain't gelling. <laughs> share the you and gelling. And, and when we share the you and gelling, that's our part, to, to move away the stone from the graves that they're in. See, Jesus told the, the helpers, y'all roll away the stone because I'm fixing to call the dead to life. See, that's his job, calling the dead to life. It's our job to help roll away the stone. And when they come out, it's our job to help unwrap them and and to bring them to a church and and get them, show them how to read the Bible and, and help them any way that we can. And they'll probably help us unwrap a few layers too. And we'll begin to unwrap all this dead old bad theology and the lies that we've believed from the devil about ourselves and about life in general And we'll begin to unwrap and we'll all be free. The the Word of God will set us free. But mostly, 
Our job is just to sit back and rejoice and be in awe as Jesus flies the plane. Because it's His Spirit that does it in us and it's His Spirit that will do it in them. And we need to just whoo, relax. We're going to the other side. And He's flying that plane and He's in control. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that we read says, For God who said, Let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Keep looking unto Jesus. Relax. We've got one job here. To love. To love. Let's not mess that up. Let's not turn the 600 commandments into 1,200 commandments. Let's just relax. Let's interpret the Scriptures in the spirit in which they were written and just love folks. Speak the truth, yes. Help them. Point, get them lost so you can get them found. Yes, do the things that Jesus did. Don't condone sin. Don't help them in their sin. Don't be a... Like sin doesn't matter. Don't, I mean, I'm not saying greasy grace. But we must keep an attitude of love behind everything that we do. And that's what's going to touch people's hearts. They don't care what you know until they know that you care. That's why people are shut off to Christians now. Because of that pharisaical spirit. They're pointing fingers at everybody. And, you know, the devil has a, a heyday with that. They don't need just, you know, just a little encouragement not to go to church. And we don't need to give it to them. We need to be so loving they can't wait to get to church so that we can all be on the plane together. We land safely in the kingdom of heaven. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.